0: and welcome to the first ever episode 39 of the Best Seats Podcast, the only podcast bringing you interviews with some of the most talented folks in and around the hospitality industry from Orange County, the greater Southern California area, and beyond each and every episode. I'm your host, Crawford McCarthy, founder of The Best Seats. As always, thank you to Allie Coyle, my friend, for providing the music for the show. You can find more of her work at AllieCoyleMusic.com. She just dropped a new track. It is fire. Go listen to it. And as a reminder, if you enjoy the show, wherever you are listening, please be sure to leave a rating and or review. It helps other folks find it. Head to thebestseats.com for more content just like this. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited for this episode. Episode 39. I can't believe it's already 39 episodes in. Um, This episode is huge. This was a super humbling episode for me. My guests for this episode are Chef Michael Reed and his wife Queenie from Poppy and Rose in downtown Los Angeles and the soon, hopefully soon to open a poppy and seed up in Anaheim, as well as a litany of other projects that they spearhead. Um, these are amazing people through and through because they're the definition and the embodiment of everything that's right with hospitality, with chef culture, with professionals who give to this industry and invest and put their lives into it and their livelihoods and just continue to give and give and give. Um, They're two of my favorite people that I've had the chance to interview. I did not know them before this interview. Um, This was set up by a mutual friend up at Bread and Butter Public Relations based in Los Angeles. So shout out to Tara for putting this together. I'm incredibly grateful for her for connecting us. Um, This was a humbling one. These are people that, like I said, put everything they have into this restaurant. It goes beyond and transcends just putting food on a plate. They're really putting their souls and their personalities, giving back to the community, just helping people wherever they can. Um, As you're going to hear in this show, it goes well beyond, you know, what tastes good and what kind of environment people want to sit in. But it speaks to the greater notion of everything that kind of started to really happen in 2020 as long overdue as it was with regards to giving credit where it's due and giving a fair opportunity to everybody in this world really putting a focus on humanity coming to terms with race relations and systematic issues, even outside of the hospitality industry. Um, You know, there's some tough topics in this one and we need to have those conversations. People need to start to be comfortable being uncomfortable. And it's not fair that so much of the onus to push these conversations has been put on the shoulders of people that are just trying to make a living and stay busy doing other things. And yet they're still out there fighting and having these conversations and educating people and telling their stories. And I'm so grateful to Michael and Queenie for telling theirs. Um, I'm so excited for the restaurant in Anaheim to open. Uh, We recorded this on the outside patio of the restaurant. There is a little bit of background noise from traffic. Um, There's a couple of exhausts here and there. So if you're listening to this in your car, Don't worry. You don't need to go see a mechanic, or maybe you do. I don't even know how much you've been driving since we're still in a pandemic. I haven't. Maybe you have. Um, So apologies for some of the background noise, but it was too beautiful a day not to sit outside. The space where Poppy and Seed is going to be going in, if you live in the Orange County area and are listening, is going to be fantastic, and I cannot recommend checking it out enough. Um, Go to Poppy and Rose up in LA and support them. They have a rooftop patio that's open at the time of this recording. Um, These are amazing people. Through and through, I was humbled for the opportunity Um, I can't tell you what this means to me. I'm so grateful to them. I really hope you enjoy it. Uh, listen to the whole thing through and through and, you know, ask yourself some questions afterwards when you go out to eat and who you support and how you support and what do they represent? Because these are people that represent everything that is right, not just with hospitality, but with humanity. Um, and I'm honored to know them. So I hope you enjoy this episode. It was a hell of a fun one to record as challenging as it was for me at times, but, We can only hope to get better these days, through and through, as people. So, episode 39 of the Best Seeds Podcast, Chef Michael Reed, his wife Queenie of Poppy and Rose in LA and the soon to open Poppy and Seed in Anaheim. Enjoy. Uh, Michael and Queenie, thank you so much for inviting me in today to the new spot to talk. I am extremely excited and kind of humbled that you guys are taking the time to sit down and do the show. Um, I read a lot of your background, and we're going to jump into some of your history and things like that, but for those who are listening who may not be familiar with you or your work, would you mind introducing yourselves and giving your background a little bit?
1: Well, I am Queenie Reed, and this is Michael Reed, and we are the co-owners of Poppy and Rose, and now Poppy and Seed. Uh, So we originally, my husband originally opened Poppy and Rose about uh, six and a half years ago.
2: That is correct.
1: Uh, and, um, he opened it in the flower mart. Um, and from then it kind of just turned into its own little thing. We started getting nominated for, you know, uh, top 10 of brunch, best fried chicken and waffles, uh, top best pancakes. Um, and then from there, you know, Michael has been a chef throughout, uh, Los Angeles working at some of, uh, our favorite eateries. And I'll let him take that from there.
2: Yeah. So I, I'm classically trained. I went to culinary school in upstate New York at the Culinary Institute of America. Um, I've been doing this for almost 17 years now. Um, I've bounced around the standard hotel in West Hollywood, which was iconic, which is no longer there, which is sad to see that shut down. Um, the last place I was at was the Vivian hotel in Beverly Hills. Um, but I've been doing that for a while. I started a catering company that's eight and a half years, nine years old now called root of all food. Um, but I've always been in love with food. So I've I just stuck with it.
0: So reading both of your backgrounds, you both obviously grew up in kind of food-centric households, um, California born and raised. I'm so happy that you came back. I don't know how you survived winters out I, in New York. <laughs> I, I, I really
2: didn't. It was like one of those, one, I was there for, signed up for a three-year program. Um, I graduated with the associates after two years and it was the option to go for another year and a half. And I was like, it's snowing. And i'm leaving before it snows again (laughs) and i literally just packed up the apartment and moved to la because i was like can't handle it
0: well everything i've read and i've known about poppy and rose Um, this is my first time meeting both of you but i've been to poppy and rose um it's fantastic so we are currently recording this february 2nd down at poppy and seed in anaheim so if you hear traffic or anything like that it should be all good but the space is beautiful before we kind of dive into some of the other issues that are topics that i kind of wanted to chat about talk to me about poppy and seed and how this came to be and again we're recording this february 2nd how close is it to becoming a reality
1: well right now we're in the process of uh you know solidifying our liquor license um and uh, you know doing just a couple of little uh things that we need to do to just to get up to code and you know our permitting for us to be able to open but uh the story behind poppy and seed and how it came along was uh a couple of years ago Michael and uh my dad and one of Michael's friends, well our friends, um, we were looking to expand. Um and at that time, uh Poppy and Rose had a different ownership structure. Um, and Michael had actually seen this building two and a half years ago. Um, almost three. And um he fell in love with the building, but we weren't really ready at that, at that point. Um we had some things that we needed to take care of before uh, we were able to, uh, you know, grow. Um, and then COVID happened. And um, even though we had planned on growing in 2020, you know, we had already planned. We had so many things like lined up that was going to just be great. Um, and we had already discussed basically growing in 2020. And so I looked at Michael and I was like, well, look, um, you know, we had made it over that first hump after COVID. Uh, And we kind of just stuck to our little motto. And so I told him, I was like, look, if we're going to still expand and we're still going to grow, we might as well do it right now. Because, you know, unfortunately, you know, there's so many businesses closing, but that also opens opportunity. And so he was like, you know what? We found this one spot in Fullerton. It was cool. Um, And then he was like, you know what? I'm going to go and I'm going to look to see if that greenhouse is still available. And I was like, why not? He went and looked. It had been listed like two days before he started looking, and so the owner was kind of like sitting on it. He was kind of just trying to figure out what he wanted to do with the building. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a there's a bar in the packing house that was actually uh, using this space because you know for outdoor dining. Um, and so I guess he you know decided like okay now he felt comfortable bringing more tenants in, and we were the first people that looked at it. And from then on, from then there. We started just kind of like formulating what it's going to be. And Michael had been dreaming about this space for years on end. And it was actually like all the way built out now. Um, and so when we walked it, you know, he, he looked at me. And he was like, this is where we need to be. And that's what we did.
0: What was it about the space, Michael, that spoke to you from the chef's perspective of things and being able to kind of serve people? Because from what I've experienced with your pl- place in L.A., just looking around at this at a glance before you've even really i'm assuming been able to kind of get your hands on it and flip it design wise i can see this kind of meeting your style a little bit what spoke to you the most about it
2: um so this building is really unique um there's only a couple other places that i've seen in the world that are kind of designed like this um you know the interior is a big glass greenhouse that's an actual functioning greenhouse um and it's really cool that you can open up all the doors and kind of just make it very open air and kind of very inviting from inside to outside. Um, You know, we have a master plan of planting an herb garden that goes all the way around the perimeter of the outside patio area that's really large and massive and really making it like a chef's paradise for me to be able to go outside and pick the herbs that I'm gonna be using that day and bring them back into the kitchen and use them for finishing dishes on the actual place that the guests are gonna be eating and not just saying, oh yeah, I have a garden and it's a show garden, but this is actually gonna be a functional garden Um, It has a private patio on the other side so we can do private events, but it's going to be very unique as far as a more inviting experience where it's smaller plates, really kind of playful, using all my skill sets that I've developed over the years and really just taking stuff that's really comforting and familiar that you're used to reading on paper and then giving you a really fun chef's twist on it that just goes, I didn't think it was going to be like this, but oh my God, it tastes so amazing. Um, And really just kind of playing with that. Familiarity of a comforting dish that you had as a little kid. uh, And then being able to be like, this is how I would cook it as a chef in this environment.
0: It's probably too early to try and get a solid idea of what the menu might look like. But I have to assume that you're already kind of formulating it in your head a little bit. What's the difference going to be between poppy and seed versus poppy and rose?
2: Well, poppy and rose is that classic comfort brunch. Amazing made from scratch, necessarily. between just the waffle batter, pancake batter, grinding your sausage in-house and just taking that love and care. So we're still taking that love and care um, and approach as a chef to do anything and everything we can do in-house from scratch, but then really using that background of saying, I love making house-made fresh pastas. So let's have three pastas that are just always rotating and changing and changing seasonally, or they're changing every week just because I get bored as a chef necessarily to be like, this is redundant. I did this for four months. <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's, let's really have fun with it and showcase what we can do as a chef and really still give you that great, amazing ingredients where like, I want to salmon or a bass dish tonight but you're not sold on what the vegetables are, but being able to sell you on, this is the best seasonal product that we can get from the local farmers and bring that to the table and be like, you will be impressed every time you come here, even though the menu's changing quite frequently, but you're still going, I have something familiar to tie down to, but then he's giving me the great twist that keeps me, every week I could come back because it's something new, it's something exciting. I get to have a new experience, but I have the, the basis of what the beautiful restaurant is to actually like tie you into it.
0: The fact that you've got this level of energy with everything going on is just astounding to me. I mean, running one restaurant, building another restaurant, being parents, along with just everything else that's going on. How are you finding the time to stay sane during all of this? Are we sane? (laughs) (laughs) That's that's a fair point.
1: (laughs) Um, I think, so when when the pandemic first happened, I mean, you know, as anyone just not even owning a restaurant or being a business owner. I think everybody was scared, you know, everybody didn't know what we were gonna do. So, you know, I know for Michael and I, we had been working a lot. So it kind of gave us time to like reset and kind of refocus what was important. Um, Cause, you know, I mean, you guys don't know Michael, but Michael works a lot.
0: <laughs> um, so, I mean, a he, he,
1: he kind of just told you like basically at one time, you know, he's also, he's always doing three or four projects at a time. And so when um, two things happened, we left downtown um, because we needed we needed someone to watch our kid. And so our, my parents were already living with us downtown and then coming back to Orange County on the weekends to kind of give us a break from the baby and they would take her. And so, you know, we had that type of thing going on. Um, and I knew that we were going to have to start, like, you know, working. Um, a lot in the restaurant as to before, you know, we were able to have like side jobs and mm-hmm. like, two or three jobs and, you know, all that type of stuff. So when that happened, we moved back out to Orange County. Um, Michael started gardening. Uh, we started doing home projects. Um, so we just basically like threw ourselves into things that we couldn't do when we were so busy worrying about keeping roofs over our head and maximizing our money and, you know, growing wealth and doing all those other types of things. It gave us a chance to basically enjoy the little things. So I would say, like, I know for me, um, my daughter is keeping us sane for the most part. Uh, it's hard because now you're at home all the time and children don't understand, like, you know, I need to work, but our kid is actually well equipped. So (laughs) she understands now, like if I tell her that we're going to work, she says, okay, bye mom. Like, you know, Um, and I think I started to, we started to get into things that made us human. So we, we shifted our focus. We started giving back a lot more. Um, I started writing music again. He started gardening and like, you know, really getting into, you know, he, he did a hydroponic garden at home and now we have koi in our pond and, you know, just like all those types of things. Um, and then, I mean, you know, always keeping in front of us that. situation's not that bad you know it could be worse so i think that that keeps us it keeps us sane you know we try to just look at what's positively happening instead of what's the negative part and then what we can do to help facilitate that
0: I, i want to talk some about you mentioned giving back and i think that if anybody is not familiar with the both of you or your restaurants and they look you up that's going to be some of the first headlines that they rightfully should see um, I think the most recent one, obviously, that I want to talk about and kind of hear your experience with is everything that kind of happened with Ellen and her <laughs> show, but just a bunch of the initiatives that you've been doing. And I want to dive into, like, especially the UNI Coalition for sure, but what have you been doing? I mean, you are very, very active people. I mean, for a lot of restaurants who are just trying to survive and try to you know, cook every day, you're both going well above and beyond for the community and doing a ton of stuff.
1: Yeah, well, we, we, we adopted this model in the beginning is slow, slow and steady wins the race. Right, and that was our first initial thought. We 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 also tried to see a need, fill a need. So originally, it's like, okay, yeah, we we do need to make money. So we pivoted and started to, we opened up uh, Poppy and Rose to become like a, a neighborhood like market. So all the things that we could basically find and we have access to because we buy wholesale like toilet paper and you know, paper napkins, things like that. Um, we were able to you know source that, and then, you know, we started to see a change on our block, people started sleeping out. We started to just pay attention to what was going on and it just seemed like the right thing to do. So to, in the fact that everything was getting worse and people were losing jobs, it's it's kind of, um, it's a little bit facetious of us to waste food. So um, for us, it was that we've been blessed enough to make it and not be the statistic of being 60 the 60% or 70% or 75% of restaurants closing. And with that comes great responsibility. Um not saying that we did anything to like not be part of the 60%. Like you know what I'm saying? But it just worked out in our favor. And I think with, you know, to whom much is given, much is required. So at the same time it's our responsibility if we're doing okay, we need to pay that forward. And we should what we as human beings, we should be giving back any excess or extra that we have.
0: Talk to me about the you and I coalition, because that's something that looking at your backgrounds and the resume and everything else, and the myriad of things that you were doing, the different restaurants and things like that. How did that come about?
2: Go for it. Okay. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, technically it was Michael's idea. <laughs> um, but, like, one night we were uh, we we're at our apartment. This is when we had our apartment. And it was me, my mom, my dad, well, obviously everybody who lived there, and Mackenzie and Michael. And I forgot what happened that day, but we were kind of just really sitting there. And this was actually really kind of, like, right when the pandemic hit or, like, right before the pandemic. I can't really remember. Before. It was before. Yeah. And so... You know, Michael was just like, "You know, what would be a good idea? You know, we're just we're just having family time. We're sitting around. We had eight dinner, we had a couple of drinks, you know, we're just sitting chilling." And he was like, "You know, what would be a great idea is if we do a teaching kitchen." And I was like, oh, "Okay." He was like, he was like, "You know, like, you know, we know how to how to cook and, you know, I know how to run kitchens and, you know, we know how to do restaurants. And so we should pay that forward for people who, you know, aren't getting too much of a good break." The question always comes up a lot to Michael is like, you know, do you see a lot of other people of color in executive position parts, or like in the kitchen? And the answer that he always gives is no. There, we're just not there.
2: Yeah.
1: Nope. Um, and so the idea was, okay, well, why aren't we there? Is it because people just aren't hiring us, or because we don't have the skill set? And a lot of it is a little bit of both. So. Um, his you know i i believe what i took from the idea was that you know we wanted to help people who are like forgotten who people don't really think about or are passed over and that's you know people who are you know considered you know the poor considered the forgotten the people who have gone to jail and considered like the degenerates I think you know what i'm saying and those types of things um and so with that Poppy rose closes at three It sits there. It's not doing anything after three o'clock. So, you know, we thought about doing the teaching kitchen. We had that. He originally, we originally had that idea. And then when we started giving back and started feeding the first responders and then started, then I, then I really took it on to try to be like, okay, well, what more can we do? And then he would come and be like, okay, well, what are we doing this month? Um, In that, then we created the and I coalition. And the whole purpose of it is that you and I are in this together we none of us anybody to think that they can do something on their own is just crazy because we all need each other like you know we're all a working body the, the the I can't say you know it wants to live without the heart just don't work that way and so it's you and I together we're in this together we have gained a certain amount of knowledge we know how to do it why not teach other people how to do it too it takes nothing from us
0: Michael, from the chef's perspective, I've had other guests on the show who have done time formally. They're formerly incarcerated individuals. What is it about kitchens from your perspective that do seem like that kind of only bastion for people that may be down on their luck or have been kind of forgotten to at least get a shot of doing something? Obviously, not being passed over for executive positions and long term positions is an entirely other problem that needs to get fixed. But what is it about the kitchen that offers hope to people that may not have it?
2: I think kitchens are one of those unique microcosms that happen in the world Um, because you can literally walk into a kitchen, pick up a knife. And as long as you know what you're doing, you can find a way to communicate, even if there's a language barrier, different culture, backgrounds between different people. And you can literally still create amazing food together. Um, And usually people that are really passionate or are willing to work in restaurants have some love of food which ties you all together, that you at some point will make a family meal and break bread together. And there's a a camaraderie that comes through doing a service that's hard. Um, And I think that's where kitchens are not considered the last option or people who want that go to jail, can get a job, but I think kitchens are more accepting of, oh, you, you have tattoos and you don't look a certain way there's not so much of that judgmental aspect of it. Yes, because we are kind of stuck in the back and kind of hiding necessarily, but we really, it's just, a, it's a good group of people that usually can collaborate um, and contribute to a common good
0: necessarily. Now that you're down in the Anaheim area and in living in Orange County proper, is there gonna be efforts to bring that sort of work environment here as well? Because obviously Anaheim has historically always dealt with a massive homelessness issue. And it's obviously something that I think personally should. And I don't know a lot of people that would disagree with this. Programs like that should exist all over to give people another chance. And especially if nothing else, a high tide raises all ships. You are just creating more chefs, which there's generally a there, hard. It's a hardship. To it's a, find. There's a lack of yeah.
2: chefs that are actually like classically trained. But you know, in my opinion, you don't have to be classically trained to no. become a good chef. No. You have to work for somebody that has the knowledge and is willing to share the knowledge with you versus I've met chefs that literally hold all their information so close to their heart that it's impossible to get anything from them. Um, But if you find a chef that's willing to invest the time and energy into somebody over a course of a couple of years, that person can then leave that chef and go get a job on his own and stand on his own two feet. And as a chef, that makes me proud when I have someone that's worth work for me for three or four years leave me which it's sad to see him go but then he goes oh you went to go be a sous chef at another restaurant that's awesome i didn't have that position for you but i'm so proud of you i'm happy for you i can only hope the best for you you know
1: and for us um you know because you did ask the question will we continue this this will be part of our efforts wherever we go Um, as we grow because you know we do have a plan to grow exponentially in the next couple of years um, every location will have a giving effort. I think it's, it's a must. it's built into our home model and it's just like it's just the type of people that we are. It's just just how we are.
0: I, I'm a firm believer in transformational relationships versus transactional and kind of what you're saying about those classic chefs that do keep everything so buttoned up and, and it's hard to get information out of them. I think change like that is unbelievably important. Uh, in my research for the show, I read a lot of kind of past interviews that you would given. I know, especially this past year with all the different things going on, both restaurant, societally, race relations and things like that, you've done a lot of really great interviews. One of that I came across was in Zagat. Um, Queenie, you gave a quote that said, I can't tell someone who created racism how to fix it, which I thought was extremely powerful and accurate. From both of your perspectives, where you're running the front of house and the HR and things like that, and you're having to manage a kitchen. It seems like you're not alone in this aspect where, you know, chefs of color, professionals of color, BIPOC people are all of a sudden having to be the voice of all this and have to kind of step up and educate a little bit for people that are trying to better themselves. But to your quote, and for, I'd be curious to hear from both of you. Is that fair for people who are already struggling so hard to pandemic in an industry that's so tough to have to take on roles like that and educate their guests?
1: Um, no, it's not fair. Um, but at the same time, it's like if I, I, I feel that if you ask me, though, I will tell you. Um, but I do think it's important for you to do the work on your own. Because at the same time, just like any other thing, like, when you dive into something for me, a lot of time muscle memory will put once you start to do the action. And so When and what I mean by saying that, you know, it's 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 not my responsibility to teach someone who created something how to dismantle it is because I don't even have the tools that you had when you created it. So it's like you have to go back to when you created these things. And even though no one's around, there's still a lot of history that we have to do and to look at to see, okay how was this created and why was it created? I think the reason why we can't get further than where we are right now is because that people, people don't want to do the work. Um, And because we haven't had any type of reconciliation of what racism has done to America. I think especially when it comes to African Americans um, and slavery, it's a really sore topic. No one wants to talk about reparations. Everyone just tries to push over it and say, well, that was so long ago, but then when you look at it from our perspective, my mom and dad went to segregated schools. Yeah. My grandmother picked cotton. So it's not that far removed. I remember being young and told when I would go into a store, even though I was a very good kid, but this was, this was common in black household is don't get in this store and embarrass me in front of these white folks. I'm 37. This was told to me when I was a kid. So even as that type of thinking has transpired into people my age, same thing goes for racism. Um, It has transferred through generation to generations of how things are being taught. Um, And for me, it's like we should, I, I do believe that we are in this together, but it also has to come with some type of awareness specifically for people that are not BIPOC people, <laughs> but a conversation needs to be had amongst th- that group of people, um, only because like what I hear a lot of times when I do have these conversations and they' MP and I'm asked these questions like, well, you know, when you say that it's exhausting to be an African American, what do you mean? This is a situation because now I have to explain again what I've gone through to you and to everybody else. And that becomes exhausting. That's the exhausting part, because then it's transpired in media that this isn't the truth. Like, well, this no I don't I don't think that that's really happening. And it's like, OK, are we all getting together huddling in some like dark space in, in the Internet saying, like, hey, all black people, let's say that this is hey, all people of color, let's say that this is all happening to us. So people will feel sorry for us like that's not happening. So. I mean, I think, I think for us, it's just that people need to start listening to the stories Mm -hmm. and listening to the stories as just humans, not color. Like if that happened to me as a human, how would I feel? How would I react? Um, Just like for instance, like even with like police brutality, if somebody runs up behind you and just tackles you, what would your body do? Your body would fight because I don't know what's going on. But it seems like when it comes to a person of color, We're just supposed to comply when you wouldn't comply. Like, you know, we saw that in the Capitol.
0: Yeah, You know. a million percent.
1: Yeah, you know, it was completely different treatment. We knew that we couldn't go that close to the Capitol and walk out, we knew that. But all of the people that were at the Capitol, specifically white people, and the people that operate in white privilege, they They knew. knew that if they go to the Capitol, that nothing that happens to them that happens to people of color would happen
0: oh, I didn't even know you could get that close. I look like the definition of white privilege. I didn't even know you could get that damn close. <laughs> you see what, what I'm like, saying? Really? I didn't the get door. the memo. Right. <laughs> like, you was like,
1: damn. wait a minute. I could have went to, like, but you see what I'm saying? Like, oh, no, absolutely. So, so, you know, like for me, like even in, you know, the work sector, I think that it's just important just to have more representation. And I think that, but there's also a part on our part too. We need to stop making white people comfortable. So like, you know, we have this whole different demeanor, and a different way that we will talk to make people feel like we're not a threatening black person. And we have to stop that too. Because at the end of the day, if we keep on minimizing it as if it's a threat, then everybody else will see it as a threat. But if we just walk around and be completely be ourselves, talk the way that we talk when we're amongst our own people, act the way that we act, then it becomes the norm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, that's just kind of where I'm at with it. I think that everybody just needs to have real hard conversations and not understand and, and what a lot of my my white friends um, a couple of conversations that I've had with them they take it so personally as if I'm talking to them personally like you white person and it's not I'm talking about the system as a whole that you just happen to and it's and it's no fault or advantage to yours but you just happen to be able to move through a lot more easier than I do because it was set up for you. So, you know, I think in those conversations, the conversations that I've had with my friends, and, I've, and I always tell them to read White Fragility, and that's helped them a lot to understand what we're talking about.
0: The hospitality industry especially has been having – Reckoning is not the right word because it's been a long time coming and it shouldn't have taken the incidents of last summer that it kind of did to push the focus from the food media perspective. Sitting here now talking in the restaurant, there's so many chefs and people of talent that were overlooked because they were also a person of color or their background didn't match up or their food wasn't familiar to someone else because that's not what they grew up with as a traditional kind of white diet. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, you're sitting here now opening a new restaurant. So many chefs, I think, get pigeonholed into, oh, well, he doesn't cook this type of food. She doesn't cook that type of food. You're gonna come out here and you're gonna do what you do. And based on your resume alone, that should be enough for people. But I'm sure that people are gonna nitpick as always. How do you handle it from that kind of media standpoint? And what can media, specifically to hospitality, do better to help that representation and to help give people a voice beyond their plate?
2: Well, it's just, to me, it's not looking at the color of my skin necessarily and being like, Well, he's black, so he must cook really good fried chicken or soul food. It just happened that, yes, we're a brunch restaurant that serves fried chicken. I know how to cook fried chicken. So what? I didn't grow up eating fried chicken in in my family. It was always healthier food. Um, So to me, it's just a matter of like taking the color of that chef's skin out of the picture, you know, and literally just judging them on what they put in front of you to actually eat. Is it seasoned well? Is it cooked properly? um and doing things like that and not so much like this is what he looks like so he has to be that kind of chef oh he's Asian so he must do Asian food Mm, it doesn't always it doesn't correlate you know like stop just pigeonholing a person on their looks alone necessarily and really just judge them on what it is what's the environment of the restaurant they built What's their service staff greeting you like? Do they make you feel warm and inviting? Does it feel like you're walking into someone's house and then they sit you down and then they bring you out an aperitif and then they give you a really good salad first course and move you through a progression. It doesn't matter what color or race they are. Did they do the experience of having a curated dinner experience?
1: But I think what people have an issue with is getting past the stereotype. Mm -hmm. so we all have stereotypes we do this amongst black people we you know like and then i think what what is happening is that we're we're starting to understand that we're not we're not monoliths just like everybody else comes from different different walks of life you know like all white people aren't the same i have met all different kinds of white people you know so and, and it's the same thing for any person of color so i think that it's again changing your mind because we're programmed automatically to see people of color as something else than just for what it is. So, you know, you're already trying to break down the stereotypes and I think that it's just it's just it's just a a conscious decision that you have to do. Just like thinking positive is hard. Thinking positive every day is hard. Like it's, it's, it, it, is. it does. It takes a lot of it's work. A conscious, <laughs> it's a conscious yeah, decision. You
0: wake up, you're like, Ooh, I feel good. Then you open Twitter. You're like, shit. Yeah. Right. You're like, what the heck? And then you have to really <laughs> back
1: your mind out of that to say, okay, think positive thoughts. It's, it's work. So like to change those stereotypes that we have lived with, like our whole entire lives, it's work. And it's going to take a lot of work. And I think that we're starting to get there, but media, but see, this is another thing. Inclusion is important. Because if you have more people of color, media writers and that are controlling the media, then they're able to step in and say, no, nah, this is actually regular. This isn't like <laughs> yeah, this is the- something that I'm I'm familiar with. Let me take that on. And then they're able to take it to their company and be like, OK, look.
2: Yeah. But the media also likes to do it in a very they pick their favorite 10 black chefs. And yeah, now they're the token black chefs, which doesn't really leave a lot of room on the table for other up and coming chefs to actually carve out their own sector and get get the immediate attention that they actually rightfully deserve, you know, because it's, these are the five, we have a question about this Black History Month, go to these five chefs. Mm-hmm. Okay, what about all the other black chefs out there doing great things? Yeah. It may not be that, that person that's rubber stamped cookie cutter that they're looking for. It may be like, he may say something that's actually legit, that makes someone think. But they don't actually have to go after them. So.
1: Well, if you, don't, if, you don't, if you don't meet the typical black story, like, <laughs> oh, my mom and dad were on drugs. I grew up in the hood. I made it out, which that's not our story. Mm-hmm. We don't come from we come from a, we both come from two-parent households. We come from, you know, everybody in our house going to college we grew up, you know, middle slash upper middle class, like we're not those black people that everybody is normally used to. But more than likely, they gravitate towards those stories. And so because that fits the mold of what people believe how black people are able to be successful. Um, And so like, That's another stereotype that has to be brought down too. all successful black people did not come from broken homes. We didn't have to fight our way out of the hood. So nothing's wrong with that story. But there's all so many different types of black people and black stories that all should be heard. Just like there's a lot of different Latino stories that should be heard. A lot of different LGBTQ stories that should be heard. A lot of different Asian American stories that should be heard and i think that and even amongst all the other minorities we got to start talking to each other too because like we had a conversation with one of our friends and he's korean he's korean american and his you know he owns a restaurant just like we do and we were having this conversation and he's like i'm so tired of hearing about black lives matter all the time you know Asians are out here struggling too and i looked at him and i said are you we don't know that Like, we think that what we see is that you guys own a lot of restaurants. You come into the hood, you own the liquor store. Like you guys have been, you guys come and take over blocks. I said, he's like, but uh, do you know that that's like the poorest of the jobs for Asians to get? We did that because we couldn't speak English because we were poor. And we're like, what? Like, okay, hold on. He's like, that's actually frowned upon in the Asian community to open up a store. I was like, what? We don't know this. No. We don't know this struggle. We think that you're doing it on purpose. (laughs) You know, so it's like those types of conversations should be had because we don't know all of our struggles that we're going through. And they're a lot alike. It's not one that, like, black people struggle is a lot hard. It is. I'm not even going to lie. When you listen to other stories, like, black people got the short end of the stick. But damn. But at the same time, it's like... Right now, we're focusing on black people. Tomorrow, we need to focus on LGBTQ. Tomorrow, we need to focus on Asian-Americans. Tomorrow, we need to focus on the native and indigenous people. But we all need to be focusing on them to try to help rectify what is going on because our system is broken. It does not work for everybody. And even though we are success stories, we're not the norm. And that's a problem.
0: One of the, It's a bunch of systems within systems that are definitely broken. And there's so many things that need to be fixed. There were a lot of conversations that I've had with people about the conversations being had before the pandemic about fixing the systems within hospitality, work-life balance in the kitchen, abuse systems all over the place. You know, in in a time where everybody, especially people that look like me, rightfully should be uncomfortable, how is it being in the business of making people comfortable, having a restaurant while still trying to work to realize how to fix some of those problems that have been in restaurants forever?
2: It's a hard one. Um, you know, like for us, for this system that we're trying to put in place, we're we're gonna try a, a, a new way of thinking about how services run, and that goes between the the awesome relationship that we wanna build between the front of the house and back of the house staff where we bridge that gap and try and shorten that pay gap between the two um, where a server could walk with $400 a night and you're paying a line cook 1550 an hour. And he busted his ass to get everything done, get ready for service, but he can barely make rent. It has to go out and get another job while the server is literally going, well, I did this three days a week and I have a bunch of other side projects that I'm working on mm-hmm. and it's not really a thing. And you're like, how do you fix that? Where's actually like an affordable living wage for everyone while still attracting the right employee that wants to be part of the system, because some servers will be like, No, I don't want to work for you. Because I want that $400. I don't care about the wage gap. And we can't really we have to really focus on people and that are genuine about this service and hospitality and not let them get away with that anymore. And be like, this is how life should be, you should be willing to give up a little bit. So then everyone has a more livable equal wage.
1: And and it's just that, like, I think for us, what, what kind of worked is that I have never worked in restaurants. <laughs> <laughs> I worked in, you know, the front desk, hospitality hotels. Like, you know, that was my extent of hospitality. Um, but I worked a lot with him doing catering, which a lot of it is just the back of the house. Part. Yeah,
0: that's just managing the chaos.
1: Yeah, you know. And so when I made my transition to, you know, go into, you know, the whole full restaurant tour with him, I'm neutral. I've never worked the front of the house. I've never worked the back of the house. So some things just make sense to me. <laughs> <laughs> now, boy, that car was struggling. Uh, <laughs> some of it just makes sense to me because I'm like, okay, like when I started to actually see how the kitchen works, I'm like, yo, they work. Hella harder than y'all do in front of the house. (laughs) Like, are you kidding me? I have to sit up here and remember how many different lumberjacks I'm putting up with all different eggs and different meats choices. And this one doesn't want meat, but this one wants avocado with with sunny side egg. That's a lot to have to maintain at one time when all you're doing is taking the order. Not to say that front of the house isn't important, but they kind of set you up. Like, they're the alley-oop. And then you're dunking it, and then you get to go home with all of the praise. If they wouldn't have gave you that alley-oop, we wouldn't have got those points. So it's kind of like we all have to work together. And when the pandemic hit, it allowed that. Because then it was like, okay, front of the house, you're really not dealing with nobody. You're dealing with the delivery drivers, and they're technically not our customer. Our customer is at home, which the only thing that they're really going to service is that food. Mm -hmm. That's the only experience that they're getting right now. So why should we be giving you guys all of the tips? We're going to split this joint 50-50 because we're working collectively. They're putting it in the box for y'all. All All you have to do is read one ticket, make sure that goes into one bag. And I think when it took everything away from everybody and they started to actually cohesively work together and understand that, just again, the eye can't blink without the heart pop pumping blood. So... They, they started to understand that, okay, that this is a collective. We're working together. We're working together. And then, like, the collectiveness in between, in, within the back of the house themselves and the front of the house, they started to get closer together. And then they started to want to cross positions. So some of the front of the house was like, hey, I can help you out if you guys get slow. So then we started to have, like, and then people in the front of the house was like, I want to learn how to kind of, I can get online. So now we're sharing, now we're sharing. It's like kindergarten, now we're sharing, now we understand, now we're kind of mixing with each other. And now, like, their little bond is, like, a, it's, a, it's super cute. Like, it's nothing that I've seen in a, in a kitchen before. Like, they're tight. They're yeah. tightly knit. And that's, I told him, I was like, even when we get here, I don't want to hear all that yelling in the back of the house and in the kitchen. That's uncalled for. Like, that don't make nobody happy. I'm sorry. If I was back there and you were yelling at me, all this food, excuse my language, is about to be fucked up. Ain't nobody getting their eggs right. <laughs> like, no. you know,
2: so that's that's one aspect of how it needs to change is just the actual inner structures of that. But I think uh, the other major component of that is really starting to get our consumers to understand you can't. These dollar menus at these fast food places is not a real representation of what it costs to get food out the door and, yeah. it's not and what it costs no. <laughs> to, no, God, to pay no. someone to work and get you the food on the table. So, you know, some people are like, I don't want to pay that much money in order to eat at a restaurant.
1: Yo, people are complaining about our chicken and waffle being fifteen fifty.
2: You know, so it's that dollar <laughs> amount that people are willing to spend on a meal for quality ingredients and having the service they're looking for. So it's like, You guys realize you got to have there's going to be an increase in pricing somewhere at some point. It's just not me just going, well, I'm going to increase your pay. That's got to carry over to the consumer and the consumer has to understand what the real value is. If you want to keep eating the level of food that you want to eat. Yeah, you got to. It's not going to be that cheapo cost anymore. It's going to be an actual cost of what it costs to go out and eat. Um, And they got to be okay with that. And it's going to take some time. I think it's like certain people in our industry, we kind of like etch up pricing little by little year over year. But it's like if we all of a sudden say we have to pay $20 an hour for a livable wage. that got to come from somewhere. It's not the restaurant owner's job to say, well, I'm just going to I'm going to take a loss. I can't even afford to do that you know that's just because
1: people people what people don't understand is that this is how we make our living too mm-hmm. it's not like some other god or some other person is paying us it's like if we don't have enough we then our whole livelihood suffers so at the same time it's like and we're the ones that's putting everything on the line for you guys to come in here and eat and for you guys to work like so you know it's and also what needs to change is that people need to stop looking at uh establishments that are run by people of color as cheaper or less expensive
0: a million percent yeah. so
1: i think that what i what i saw is because like you know before the pandemic hit no one knew that poppy and rose was black owned ever um no one ever had a problem with our price <laughs> of anything once we became like really black <laughs> and out in the front now i'm starting to see a lot of people have complaints about the price and so that's just that that's another thing. It's like that's not the lifestyle we come from. That's not even what we represent. So like the food cost is what it is. That's, yeah. that's how much it costs. And you loved it before. You should still love it the same.
0: I could not agree more. I think the biggest reckoning this country needs to have is with the price of tacos to start. Because Hello. Those things should not be a damn dollar. They're, no, they should not. God bless Taco Maria in Orange <laughs> County for actually charging what they should damn cost.
1: Oh, where is that? We want to go. Costa Mesa. Yes. Okay. We love tacos. (laughs) We love tacos. Well,
0: There's one last thing that I do want to ask before I let you guys go, because I know you're very busy and have a lot to do. You mentioned that obviously nobody knew that you were black owned before. Then everybody did because of all the tragedies and terrible things that happened over the summer when everybody started wanting to support businesses, which Mm -hmm. they should have been supporting to begin with, regardless of who ran them. And Michael, this may be more so for you kind of in the kitchen, but L.A. was so scrutinized again, it was L.A. and New York. Right. There were headlines and are still headlines now for the pandemic with relates to the hospitality industry. What was it like for you to go not just as an L.A. chef, but all of a sudden as a black L.A. chef where everybody started kind of adding those monikers based on everything that was going on?
2: Um. I don't know. It's For me, it was like in the beginning of the pandemic, it was like I had a lot of sad memories in March just because it was like closing each cafe and like Mm -hmm. laying off all that stuff and then going to the Vivian and closing the entire restaurant, like scrubbing it top to bottom, donating all the food, which was like $20,000 a product because we didn't know when we were going to reopen, but they're like shut the entire kitchen. I was like, what do you want me to do with all this? So then we gave it to a nonprofit that needed food. So it was like, just doing all that and then still going back and being like, okay, you still have to figure out your own restaurant. What's going on? Um, and for that first two months, it was more or less just like hold on to anything and everything you can and do it as quickly as you can and as wise as you can and make these decisions that were really hard decisions because there wasn't enough information. Um, and then it was kind of like, oh shit, we're not making enough money. And what's the next step? and then all of a sudden when we got noticed that we were a black owned business there was a huge upswing um which was really great you know like i didn't we didn't talk about the blackness of poppy and rose because it didn't really matter you know um but then when we saw what happened when we did proclaim that we were black owned um and we were a husband and wife team that all of a sudden you went from that first day of being like that blackout Tuesday and going, should we open? Should we not open? Well, <laughs> we are black. So I guess we, they could patron us, you know, and kind of debating whether or not we stay open or closed. We weren't staffed for it. Yeah. We were so we un- slammed. so understaffed that day. Cause we're like, we don't know what's going to happen. And you know, it's a Tuesday. We we're not that busy. They got destroyed. Yeah. The next, Four, five, seven days to two weeks after that, it was just a steady increase of just every day was better than the next. And I was like, "All right, you're back on payroll. You're back on payroll. Come on, can we can we keep up with this swing?" And seeing that support from downtown LA, LA people and all the way from people driving from Pasadena just to get our food was really satisfying. And you know, we felt really connected to our community um, at that point that were really coming in and supporting us and able to get our full staff back in the house doing their job and it was kind of really amazing Um, and there's
1: always like this fear of proclaiming that you're black anything (laughs) so like for me there was this this fear like okay after this dies down what I don't want to do is I don't want to be attacked for being a black owned company either and that like seeing what happened on the blackout Tuesday, kind of like settled that fear. Like it was always like, especially like when you're moving around in corporate America, you can't be too black. You can't say too much black stuff. You can't mention that you're black. You can't say that right there is black. Like you can't do any of that. Like you have to walk a very, very fine line. And that was my whole thing. Like I was like, holy shit. Are people now gonna start like what they're doing with the food? Oh, the food don't taste right. Or just mm-hmm. start we just start getting bad comments just because now the stereotype of what black people are is now just transferring all through you know. And then there's people that just that are just haters. Yeah. And so I was like, I was honestly to tell you the truth, I was scared when the when the, when they started coming. Out. I was like, oh my god, like what is this gonna be? And to see the reaction, I think that people were ready for it. I think that a lot of people were just like, please give me the okay. To say I want to patron a black business just because they're black, <laughs> and I think when the list came out, people were like, "Oh, thank you."
0: I brought my form. Can you sign it? Yes,
1: yeah. please. I I sign it so I won't get in any trouble. Like, no, you it know, was,
2: it was interesting. To see, like, because it's both ways happened. Like, there's black people that were coming into the restaurant for years. Yeah, and they, you, like I, I use a like friend a big, that we actually big, picked big up. hair, <laughs> normally. So it's like I'll be in and out, moving around. Clearly, you're like I don't know who he is, but. He's always here, and then all of a sudden be like, "You're the owner." I'm like, "Yeah." It was like we just understated it, you know. Like mm-hmm. we weren't like the main thing was focus on the food, focus on your customer service. Doesn't matter who owns it. No, um, it
0: should never have had to have been the defining feature. That's the problem with all of it. Mm-hmm. It shouldn't matter if you're making good food and you've got a good business. That's what should matter.
1: Right, but it but for for a lot of people, it it does. True. I mean. And it's okay, like, you know, a lot of people say, well, you know, should we refer to you as Black-owned? Well, we are Black-owned. Like, that's okay. Like, it's okay to see our color. It's just not okay to, it's not okay to form opinions about us because of our color. Like, I want you, I want everybody to see us as Black people. Being Black is wonderful. Just like being white is wonderful, being Asian is wonderful. I should see everyone's color. We should see everyone's ethnicity because that's who makes them who they are. But we shouldn't transfer over all of these negative connotations that don't hold any merit because of their ethnicity or their color or their gender or sexual orientation preference. Like, you know, I think that I think with, you know, you'll hear a lot of people say this, that, you know, black people do start a lot of shit. And I think I'm not saying that, you know, you know, George Floyd dying was tragic. There were a lot of black men that died before him. Tons of Latino men that died before him at the hands of a ton of black women that have died before him. But I think that it being so visible and it being seen, it kicked off this whole type of movement that everybody needed. Every minority, every disadvantaged person needed this to kick off. And I think that now it's just, it's really opening the door for us to actually be like, it is okay, Mm -hmm. calm down. (laughs) Yeah, right, it's okay to not be okay. And it's okay to say that I just wanna do this because the person is a certain color, because we know that there's been a shortfall, you know? So like, we got a lot of backlash because I posted I wanted to get a black graphic designer and people were like, oh my God, you're being racist. (laughs) No, because if you walk into our restaurant, we don't employ a lot of black people. I'm trying to do my part as far as being, as far as including the diversity and the inclusion. We lacked on having that diversity of what, like what we look like, doesn't represent. If you walk into Poppy and Rose, you—that's why you would never know that the owners are black, because you don't have a whole bunch of black people running around in there. And that's what people believe happens. They believe that once something becomes like black-owned or Latino-owned, the whole shit is gonna turn to one color. And it's like just like President Barack Obama was. The president of the whole united states just not black people we're owners of the whole poppy road just not black people to employ there so you know i think it's just everybody needs to honestly just kind of mind their own business and let people just do what they do (laughs) and just see people as humans identify their color understand where they come from embrace that Mm -hmm. instead of being afraid of it
0: that's a pretty perfect way to wrap this (laughs) one up obviously we've been going a little bit over (laughs) schedule and y'all are very very busy Opening a restaurant. Um, if people want to find you, they want to find Poppy and Rose. Everything else, social media, connect. Where can folks do that?
1: So, our social media for Poppy and Rose is at Poppy and Rose LA. Uh, our website is www.poppyandrosela.com. If you want to reach out to us for Orange County, that is Poppy and Seed OC, and then the same for the uh, website www.poppyandseedoc.com. Michael's hashtag is at Chef Michael Reed. And mine for Instagram is at Queenie, period. Well, actually, Queenie, K-W-I-N-I, underscore R-E-N-E, Renee.
0: And obviously, all those links will be in the show notes at the end. Thank you both so, so much for the time. This was absolutely awesome. Thank Thank you you. for opening the restaurant. And uh, I can't wait to see it fully opened, hopefully soon.
1: Oh, you're our our first little press. Yes.
0: (laughs) Guys, thank you very much. Thank you. That was a hell of an episode for episode 39 of the Best Seats Podcast. Again, thank you so much to Michael and Queenie for having me up at the space. Obviously, opening a restaurant these days is no easy task. Um, Having a child, having multiple locations, everything else they got going on. I'm so grateful to them for setting aside the time and talking with me. Um, I'll forever be in their debt for putting this pokey little podcast together and, uh, granting me some time in their lives. So I cannot wait for the restaurant to open. If you live in the area, you should definitely be excited in the meantime, depending on when you're listening to this, if it's not open yet, head up to Los Angeles, um, and support them up there, but just support them in general, follow them on social media, um, hear what they have to say, taste the food that they're making. Again, these are great people and we need more people like this in all of our lives. So thank you again to chef Uh, Thank you again to Queenie. Thank you to all of you for listening. Thank you to Ali Quill for the music. I don't know. Just thanks, man. I'm in a thankful mood today. This is a good episode. This was a fun one. So I'll see you back for episode 40. Stay safe. Wear a mask. Don't be a dick. Stay off Yelp. You know the drill. All good. All right, folks. Love you all. See you next episode. Take care. The Best Seats Podcast is an original production of The Best Seats. It is written, edited, produced, and owned by myself, Robert McCarthy, founder and owner of The Best Seats. It is recorded in Lisa Viejo, California. It is subsidized through generous donations through patreon.com slash thebestseats. The following are names that have subscribed at the highest tier, aka norm status, and thus allow me to produce the show each and every episode. Thank you from the bottom of my heart, here are the supporters. Alexander Cook. Katie Cassie, Serena Warino, Eric Lutz, Cheryl McCarthy, George Pavlov. Thank you for your support.